Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The World Health Organization recently declared that air pollution is the world's greatest environmental threat to human health. Are cities and governments doing enough to clean up their act? Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Also coming up on today's show, how a theory from a medieval theologist has influenced all of modern science. Occam's razor is science, in my opinion. That is the fundamental principle of science. You take the simplest solution. If you see lights in the sky, think aeroplanes, satellites, comets, etc., before you think of flying saucers. And can music be used to communicate with aliens? Music makes a rhythmic mark. And then we begin to elaborate on how we can develop this concept as a universal concept, an intergalactic music theory of everything. But first... Exposure to outdoor air pollution accounts for more than 4 million deaths every year globally. The World Health Organization recently lowered the recommended limits for how much air pollution people should be exposed to in cities. It's the WHO's first major overhaul of its air pollution guidance in 16 years. 91% of the world's population live in areas that exceed the old limits. This week, London expanded its so-called ultra-low emission zone, designed to deter the most polluting vehicles. Other cities, such as Paris, have experimented with car-free days, and several European urban centres have pledged to ban cars completely in the next decade. What more needs to be done to tackle air pollution? The latest evidence shows that actually all levels of air pollution are harmful. Dr Audrey de Nazelle is the co-deputy director of the Centre of Environmental Policy at Imperial College London. If you think about the types of air pollutants, like particulate matters, small particles, fine particles, or nitrogen dioxide, which is a gaseous pollutant, both of which are found typically in cities, the primary source in cities of these types of pollutants are traffic. But of course, there are other sources such as wood-burning stoves, heating and cooking and industrial emissions, etc. So particles in the air that come from all these different types of sources, that's the pollution you're talking about here. What kinds of sizes are they? Each size has its different appellation, doesn't it? That's right. So the ones that are regulated are what's called PM10 and PM2.5. 
So PM10 is particles that are less than 10 microns. PM2.5 are particles that are less than 2.5 microns. Those are tiny, tiny particles. They are so tiny, uh, PM2.5 in particular, that they go all the way through our lungs into the bloodstream and can attack every organ of our body. There's also ultra-fine particles. Those are the, the really the tiniest of them all and can really reach uh, far-distance organs in our body through the bloodstream. And that's why air pollution is so harmful. It really attacks us throughout various stages of our lives, from uh, the times when we're in the womb of our mothers all the way to getting old. It affects the way our lungs grow and it affects the way our brain develops. It has impacts on diabetes, cardiovascular disease being the major one, respiratory disease. Even if there's been some indication, it might affect obesity. So it really is one of those things that has so many negative impacts. I guess the health risk is why the World Health Organization has renewed its recommendations on air pollution. Can you just um, help us understand what has changed there? The World Health Organization produces those guidelines, which are recommendations of where the types of standards that governments should be putting in place and in the previous edition, which was in 2005, the levels that were recommended, the guideline values, for example, for PM2.5, were 10 micrograms per cubic meter. That has been cut in half. So the new guideline value for PM2.5 is 5 micrograms per cubic meter. So what's led the World Health Organization to revise these standards is that the new evidence that has been accumulating in the last 15 years have demonstrated much more strongly how pollution, air pollutants, affect every organ of our body. So it's not just cardiovascular or respiratory diseases, which was what was the initial focus. And in addition to that, there's more evidence on how these pollutants have negative health effects at all measurable levels that can be found around the world. What can actually be done to reduce air pollution? Is it about technology solutions or do people have to change their behaviour in some way? Technological solutions do, of course, have an important role to play. But what's often been overlooked and something that really needs a lot more attention is how we also need to engage citizens into behavioural solutions. When you engage citizens towards behavioural solutions you are able to tackle air pollutants everywhere and we all need to chip in to obtain those reductions that will really bring benefits. But when you engage people in their behavior change, particularly in getting people out of their cars and increasing physical activity, not only are we reducing air pollution, but we're really getting a lot more health benefits, much broader than just by reducing air pollutants. Do you think that clean air zones or ultra-low emission zones, is that a good thing to do in a city as densely populated as London? And, and of course, there are many cities like this around the world. Well, I have to say I'm, I'm rather ambivalent about those ultra-low emission zones because, of course, the technological improvements of getting people, for example, in electric vehicles instead of petrol or diesel vehicles is going to be an incremental improvement. There will be a, definitely an improvement in terms of air pollution. But the problem that I see with it is that it will be a small change in air pollution. Of course, you get much lower levels of air pollution when you simply get rid of the cars instead of just changing the engine. Because even in the case of electric vehicles, a lot of people think that electric vehicles don't create emissions, but in fact, they create emissions from tire and brake wear. And the particle emissions from tire and brake wear from electric vehicles tend to be higher than from conventional vehicles just because the electric vehicles are, are heavier. 
So you're only eliminating parts of the emissions and not the whole of it. And more importantly, I think, is it's an opportunity cost. By investing so much in creating the infrastructure, whether it's for ultra-low emission zones or whether it's for electrification of vehicle fleets, you're creating an infrastructure that is an investment that means that it's not put into something that is much more visionary and that will help our society and our cities in a much broader way. There's also a danger that it will lock us in into a system. So once you've invested into the whole electric vehicle schemes, then you've got vested interest in the whole system. It means that you're not able to easily get out of it, which will then make it much harder to move away from it and to envision a new type of city. Most of us in in many parts of the world have had to undergo lockdowns in the last year and a half because of the COVID-19 pandemic and traffic reduced a huge amount in many cities. Are there lessons to be learnt from those lockdowns about the ways that people adapted their travel or changed their travel or reduced vehicular travel at all? Yes, I think it's been wonderful to see how because of people staying at home, the traffic went way down and people did their starts walking and cycling, and really to have a major change in the way we transport ourselves. The lockdown really has enabled people who never dared cycle before, because suddenly the streets were made much more safe with a lot less traffic. People dared go out and start cycling. And once you start cycling, people really get hooked and want to continue it. So it's been very hopeful that people really did start experience the city cycling and also experience the city with cleaner air, with birds singing, and just in general, the much higher quality of our environment and of our streets throughout lockdown. Of course, I don't want to praise lockdown because it was so difficult for so many people, but it did bring some understanding that change is possible and that change is desirable. Now, on the other hand, I think we need to be potentially worried about the fact that people have also started thinking that they can go out and live out in the country. And the problem about going out living in the country is that it's very hard to create sustainable living and sustainable environments when everybody's out living in far distant places and having to drive wherever they go. So I think we need to really revisit the way we live and plan our cities so that there are desirable places for people to live in and enjoy living in. I think when we look at pictures of today in 20 years' time, it will be like watching a movie where people are smoking. We think, what were they thinking? And I'm pretty sure that that will be the the future of our cities. What were we thinking to be living surrounded by cars? Dr. Audrey de Nazelle, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. The issue of air pollution is somewhat linked to another environmental crisis, climate change. A zero-carbon economy would go a long way to cleaning up the air in our cities. In the run-up to the climate conference COP26, starting next week in Glasgow, Scotland, our special report in The Economist will be on averting the tragedy of climate change. Subscribe for your best introductory deal. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That link is in the show notes. And of course, don't miss our podcast series to a lesser degree for a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics and the technologies needed to tackle climate change. That's to a lesser degree on your podcast app.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine you're investigating the world. You're looking at why a certain phenomenon happens. You've got two possible theories. Both explain all elements of the problem and leave no loose ends, no unanswered questions. One theory is fiendishly complicated, the other beautifully simple. Which is right and why? Occam's razor was uh, understood in the medieval world as entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. Now, what that means, when you try to explain something, you should try to keep the components of your explanation to a minimum. John Joe McFadden is a professor of molecular genetics at the University of Surrey in Britain. He's also the author of a new book called Life is Simple, How Occam's Razor Set Science Free and Unlocked the Universe. People often confuse Occam's razor with a claim that the world or universe is simple. It doesn't claim that. It just says that the explanations that we should use to make sense of our world should be kept as simple as possible. But that simplicity could be quite a complicated simplicity. We have many planets in the solar system, not one, because we know that the world is a more complicated place. So the Occam's razor form of simplicity is a simplicity of explanation, not a simplicity of objects out there. I think the phrase Occam's razor has often been deployed to mean if there is a complicated answer and a simple answer that both make sense, then the simple answer is the one you should go for until you've got some sort of reason to believe more complicated things. It's the opposite of a conspiracy theory. Is that the right way of thinking about it? That's certainly a very powerful way of thinking about it. If you see lights in the sky, think aeroplanes, satellites, comets, etc., before you think of flying saucers. So don't invent new stuff if the stuff that is already part of your world is sufficient. And yes, it's certainly the opposite of conspiracy theories, which invent all sorts of ideas and claim them to be real. And this was what William of Ockham really fought against back in the medieval world. The medieval world then, the philosophy was full of stuff that was unnecessary, superfluous, and he tried to get rid of them. Well, you mentioned William of Ockham, who created the metaphorical razor. Who was he and what did he do? How did he come up with the idea? Yeah, he was a Franciscan friar and he studied theology at Oxford. And at the time, theology was called the Queen of Sciences. And this was because there were efforts mainly by Thomas Aquinas to claim that theology was a science. It was no different from the science you might use to look at fish or rocks or stones because the objects of uh, theology were just as real. And Ockham really went against that. And he insisted that science and theology were separate. Theology and religion were based on faith, whereas science was based on facts and reasoning and using the razor, finding the simplest solutions. So you don't use angels to account for stuff if you don't need to. And this was a revolutionary approach in the medieval world. And it earned him a charge of heresy. He had to travel to Avignon 
to answer these charges. Uh, he then got embroiled in another row with the Pope that ended up with William of Ockham accusing the Pope of being a heretic and provoking him to flee from Avignon, chased by a posse of, of papal soldiers. So he had an interesting history in his own right, and I think he's largely unknown, despite his very important role, I think, in Western philosophy and science. How radical were these principles at the time? Um, what was the response amongst his colleagues at the time? Well, for example, one of his colleagues, Jean Buridan, who was studying in Paris at the time, was the first person, as far as I'm aware, who used this argument of simplicity to argue that it's the earth that moves rather than the stars, the moon and the sun every day. So Jean Buridan, who was an Occamist scholar, very much influenced by Occam's thoughts, made the claim that, well, it would be simpler. Instead of the stars rotating around the world every day, all these stars, we could have the world moving and rotate every day, and then the stars stay still. The sun doesn't have to go around the Earth every day. So that was the foundation for Copernicus's model of the solar system, and that gave us eventually, through Kepler and others, the modern solar system. So adopt the simple solution. Kepler did the same. Newton said that you should always accept the simplest solution. And all scientists do. Let me ask you a provocative question. Is there a limit to the ideas of Occam? Occam's razor is science, in my opinion. That is the fundamental principle of science. You take the simplest solution. But things got more complicated. For example, if we look at how objects move when they travel close to the speed of light, then Newtonian mechanics breaks down. But it breaks down anyway. And without coming up with, say, special relativity to make sense of it, then you would have to modify Newtonian mechanics and make it more complicated. So the world turns out more complicated than you expect it to be. Quite often that happens. But what scientists do is still look for the simplest solutions. So Einstein came up with special relativity, which was the simplest way of accounting for the facts that were available at the time. For example, that the speed of light always remained the same irrespective of how fast you were moving. That was a complication that couldn't be accounted for in the Newtonian physics, but it makes sense in special relativity. And that's the simplest way of accounting for both apples falling from trees and the fact that time slows down when objects travel close to the speed of light. So sometimes our universe turns out to be more complicated than we previously thought it was, but still Occam's razor is there to provide us with the simplest way of understanding it. John Joe McFadden, thank you very much. Thank you, it was a pleasure. But just one thing before you go, John Joe. Sometimes on Babbage, we like to give away the new book from our guests in a competition. And this week is no exception. Yes, Alec, uh, I'd like to ask uh, your listeners whether they can name an entity beyond necessity in the universe. Note that the answer cannot be an individual person, but it can be a natural or man-made thing or even an institution or organisation. Good luck. The best answers should get both the creative and analytical hemispheres of our brains working. We want you to make us think and to surprise us. Maybe also make us smile. Send your answers to podcasts at economist.com. That's podcasts, plural, at economist.com. The deadline is next Tuesday, the 2nd of November, and we'll reveal our favourite answers on a future show. Good luck.
One. And finally. We have ignition and we have liftoff. In 1977, NASA, America's space agency, launched the equivalent of a message in a bottle into space. The golden records were attached to the sides of the two Voyager spacecraft. The idea was that as the spacecraft hurtled through outer space, any aliens they came into contact with might find and decode the messages on the records. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. The records contain a diverse array of information representing the finest examples of humankind. Bonjour tout le monde. Silama khemen. Maela Voice recordings and photographs from around the world. Music. even whale calls. But is music really the universal language with which we can communicate with the unknown? NASA's golden record was sent into space in 1977 by Carl Sagan and his team. I'm Daniel Chua. I'm a chair professor of music at the University of Hong Kong. I'm a musicologist. That means he thinks about music rather than creating or performing it. His latest book, with Alexander Redding, is called Alien Listening. It offers theories on how music can be analysed and listened to by aliens and humans alike. Basically, Carl Sagan had the idea of sending music into space to communicate with aliens. So with just about six weeks before the launch of the Voyager missions, he gathered a team together and compiled a record of the Earth's greatest hits. It's a little bit like a mixtape sent to aliens with love. And so this was all engraved onto a golden record, which if an alien came across it, the idea would be that they would play the record and get some sense of human culture. What assumptions do you think the golden record makes about the type of life form that could find and actually listen to it? Well, when the Golden Record was sent into space over 45 years ago, I think it was more a kind of symbolic act. At that time, people didn't really believe in aliens very much. Uh, now, of course, with all these exoplanets, is a better proposition. And the idea was to communicate universally with aliens, and they sent music into space thinking that, well, it must be some kind of a universal language of vibrations and numbers. But the problem is that we don't really know if aliens have ears or what kind of receptive devices they have. So in a way, it's almost impossible to guess how this is going to work. And of course, Sagan had to assume that the aliens that somehow intercept the Voyager spacecraft would be far more intelligent than human beings. They would be able somehow to not only get hold of this record, but invent or create a gramophone from what's available and then play it back. And if you look at the disc 
the cover has all kinds of nonverbal instructions. And they're assuming that the aliens would know the spin rate of the hydrogen atom in order to set the right sort of playback tempo, as it were, for this record. So all kinds of assumptions are being made. And even if we were to try to get this record to be played by the most intelligent species on our planet, say the whales, I mean, they wouldn't even be able to get their hands on this because they don't really have hands anymore. They just have a very slippery relationship with the golden record. You said there that music was potentially a sort of universal form of communication, music and numbers. Why would that be universal? I think the idea here is that mathematics would be universal, but if you're going to communicate in mathematics, you can't just send an equation or just start counting because that would not communicate very much very fast. So music, in a way, does a lot of counting very fast in a communicable way. So the assumption is that everybody can work with binary numbers. But even if you were to do that, you would have to transmit it as a form of vibration, something that an alien would be able to sense and therefore to interpret. So I think it's partly the mediation of numbers that's important here. And then the second thing that's really important is that music is able to share something that is in relation. In other words, you can scale it at any level. Say, for example, a Bach fugue. Now, you might be an alien that cannot hear this Bach fugue because it has different ears and cannot register the same frequencies as we can. But if you were able to analyze this record, you could transpose those frequencies in the same relationship to your particular bandwidth that your ears or whatever senses you have uh, would be able to accommodate. The idea that I want to get across is that music is actually very, very simple. Music makes a rhythmic mark. And when you have several dots, it's making a repetitive pattern. And that pattern is marking time. And then once you have that, you have music. And then we begin to elaborate on how we can develop this concept as a universal concept, something that might be the basis in a rather tongue-in-cheek way of an intergalactic music theory of everything. If we came across alien music, would we recognise it? Well, <laughs> not really. I mean, the, the, the question is always the question of mediation. And that there's always media. And what happens in that space will change everything. So the interface is the key thing here. And when we're talking about unknown species, then that interface is really never going to work. There's always going to be this gap. And so we need to theorize the gap, as it were. And in a way, the book is really about how you can't ever really have a direct experience of the music that we make as humans with another species. They're going to always hear it through a completely different interface. Uh, and so if we were to receive music from an alien, First of all, we have to figure out what that interface is, and then we would have to reverse engineer everything in order to make it accessible to our own ears. So there's quite a lot of work involved in decoding music from another planet. Yeah, it's quite a lot of work, but you need theory underneath it all, which is where you start, right? I mean, just if you zoom out, I guess people listening to the conversation might just think, well, you know, music for me is an emotional, experiential, context-heavy situation. And we're talking about it in very theoretical, almost mathematical terms. So could you help people understand, you know, why does one need a intergalactic musical theory of everything? I mean, what does it help us to understand and put into context about the universe? 
Well, we would need an intergalactic music theory of everything in order to actually communicate with one another. I think one of the problems that we have at the moment is that we are becoming more and more particularized. We, we want to have very specific, very local identities. Our politics tend to be about identities these days. But the question we really have to ask is what actually underlies all these differences? Is there anything that we can call music that enable us to have all kinds of different musical cultures that mean all kinds of different things? Because if we don't have that underlying thing, then we really can't communicate or work with one another. Now, obviously, we can understand music from different cultures. So there is a kind of basis already for understanding these things. So we must talk more about that. But the point I make in the book is that actually... Talking about what we share is much harder than talking about the things that make us different. But we need to focus much more on what binds us together than what actually separates us and makes us very, very distinct. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Hello. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does make a difference. The producers are Jason Hoskin and Amika Shortino-Nolan. The programme was mixed by Nico Rofast and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Alok Jha and in London, dreaming of aliens one day listening to this podcast, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.